This is the Crime Cafe, where I interview some of the best authors in crime fiction, suspense, and thriller fiction. I'm Debbie Mack, the host of, the, of Crime Cafe, and uh, it's my pleasure to interview uh, Ben Sobiak today. However, before I get to that, I would like to let you know that if you want to buy a really great story package, it's available. Everybody who gets interviewed at the Crime Cafe has contributed to the Crime Cafe story package, which is available on my website, crimecafe.net, for only 99 cents. You won't find a better bargain on the internet, I, I, I'm telling you. Some great stories on there, novels, short stories, and essays for only 99 cents. Also, um, if you would like our Facebook page, and leave a review for us on iTunes. I'd greatly appreciate that. All the uh, social media um, good word you can spread would be greatly appreciated. So having said that, I'd like to introduce my guest, a wonderful writer and a weapons expert, Ben Sobiak. Uh, and I remember we met on, I believe it was Crime Spot. Isn't that correct, Ben? Yeah, yeah. It was one of the old Ning networks that yes. uh, popped up there for a while. They were really popular. Yeah, that one was all about crime fiction. I remember that. Yeah. You would uh, you just come out with identity crisis, I think. That's right. Yes. And um, I remember you and LJ Sellers were both people I got to know through that network. Yeah, yeah. And very glad that I did. Um so welcome to the show, and thanks for being on. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's it's great to be here. You you do a great job with this with this podcast, and I, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. And um, let's see. Let me start off with asking you about the invisible hand, because sure. I was intrigued by the premise. See, I used to work as an attorney for EPA. Oh, so there you go. Yeah. I am always kind of following environmental issues and interested in the environmental law. And of course, I'm familiar with fracking. So why don't you explain to our listeners what fracking is and about the, the plot of your story? Yeah, well, fracking is, uh, it's, I guess people think it's a, a new technology. It's been around for a few decades, um, but it's a, it's a way of extracting oil out of the ground uh, shale oil, so it's it's not just sitting there in a liquid form. Although I didn't, I went to school for journalism, people. So so bear with me. Um, it it's a way of pumping water and other chemical into the ground to cause that shale to fracture, and then that oil uh, or fossil fuel, the raw form of it, comes out of the shale, and then that's pumped up out of the ground. That's the most simple way that I can put it. Um, most people have heard about fracking in the news lately as it relates to North Dakota, uh, at least around where I am. I'm in Minnesota right now, and and although we don't often go to North Dakota, it's still there, uh, and there's still an oil boom going on there, or oil contraction, I suppose, now with the low uh, gas prices, and this is January 2016 we're talking. But um, my family has a farm in central North Dakota. It's about a thousand acres. Um, it's not in the oil boom, but it's oil boom adjacent. But anybody who has been up in North Dakota before the oil boom and after, and when all the fracking and other energy development came into the state, would know that 
the state is completely different than what it was before this oil and energy development moved in. And on the plus side, this provided a lot of jobs, especially during the, this last recession we had where people were out of work. People came from all over the country, sometimes from different parts of the world to work, and you could make a lot of money. And in a short period of time, without a lot of education or, or much of a skill set, and that I guess that was the upside. The downside was um, it's a very remote rural state. Even in even the big cities in North Dakota don't really have all that many people. Um, they have sometimes it's transient, sometimes it's uh, workers, sometimes it's just people who live there. But really, there there are no big concentrations of people. But Suddenly, out of nowhere, uh, you get this massive influx of people coming in to work and they're making a lot of money and there's nothing to do with that money in North Dakota. Usually they send it home, but sometimes they just get stuck there. It changes the dynamic of the state itself. And I thought it would be important to capture uh, a piece of that, not necessarily the crime element of that, but just the the bigger picture of what that of what that could mean for a state or sometimes even the global scale which is where i'm going with uh the invisible hand it's it's set in the oil boom the characters are in the oil boom but the oil boom is something bigger than the characters themselves it's it, there there've been a couple takes on this and it, i think a lot of people when they write about it at least in the crime fiction genre, they're trying to pull some sort of crime or scheme out of the oil boom where the characters are trying to make money and they get involved in drugs and then they shoot each other and on and on. And, and that's fine. I mean, that that's just one take that you could take on, the, on this part of history. But what I wanted to show is that nothing happens in a vacuum, especially with a commodity like oil in that if there was, oh, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not promoting this idea, but I'm just throwing it out there with, with the novel that if, there, if something like oil is so important to global markets and the stability of the United States and energy independence, all these things, if it's so important, don't you think that there's somebody somewhere in the world that is going to make sure that if some little thing like a piece of land is sold to the right person or a um, or mineral rights are exploited in a certain way uh, so that this energy development could move forward, don't you think that this that that person, whoever it is, wherever they are, would go in and make sure that that little thing happened? And that's kind of what I was what that's what I wanted to explore with the invisible hand. So what you have is a, a series of murders that happen and the wrong person dies because this tract of land was going to be sold and then this person dies and now the land's not going to get sold. And really on its own, it, it's not that big of a deal because land goes back and forth in these, I mean, people in North Dakota own thousands of acres, I, I, a parcel of a, a thousand acres isn't that much. But if it's critical to some sort of energy development, well, now it suddenly becomes a big deal because that energy development, if it doesn't happen, is going to affect international politics and on and on and on. The oil boom in North Dakota is just the epicenter of something and the ripple effect is huge. But this isn't, 
this isn't a global thriller conspiracy kind of thing. It just it's about the people who have to live through that when this other interest comes to town. So somebody dies, they take off, and, and per usual, detectives have to go find this murderer. But then there's this other element that comes in that, that is very, very interested in making sure that this plot of land, despite however this murder might have played out, this plot of land is sold to the correct people so that this energy development can go forward, and that's far more important than the murder itself. So it, it perverts the legal process, um, the, the sense of justice that you'd normally expect from a, a, a detective story because you have this interest that only cares about getting this, this ener energy development to move forward. And that's not so far off from the truth, um, I, I think. But I'm, again, I'm, I'm not the conspiracy theory I, I come across it. No matter how many times I say it, I'm not. But um, it's 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 a thought experiment that that should make anybody with an interest in economics, or I mean, in your case, I mean, being an attorney with the the EPA, I, mean, I you must know that there are some interests out there who are very particular about the way things happen in certain events. So for sure, <laughs> right? And this might be the a place where that happens. I don't know, but. I gotta think it's it's logical. There's there's a logic to it that makes uh, perfect sense. Wow, that sounds absolutely uh, gripping. I mean, um, stories like that that take a situation and go beyond the obvious to something that's bigger and involves a societal on on a large scale society's issues are are mysteries that really appeal to me. Yeah, and yeah. I, I got the sense that they appealed to you from your first novel, um, Cleansing Eden. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I remember that one, and I remember it was about a journalist. There was a journalist in there, and there was a lot of um, focus on celebrity culture and drugs. Mm -hmm. And uh, so talk about that a little bit, because I, I enjoyed Cleansing Eden a lot. What gave you the idea? Was it your work in journalism, or was there something else? Oh, thank you. Uh, well, I appreciate that. I, I don't hear that a lot about that novel. Uh, I, I think that one was me still having uh, being a little wet behind the ears with with some of my writing things. But you're you're right. Yeah, I started as a newspaper reporter um, in Minnesota, and then I I moved on to Wisconsin, where I took a position as an editor for a, a knife magazine, which seems unrelated, but in some ways it is. And you get a, a glimpse of how. Um, you get you get a glimpse of how people form their perceptions about the world, uh, having worked in media and not just in in my industry. I I still work for the same publisher of that that knife magazine, just in some different ways. But um, what I wanted to do with with cleansing Eden was show that um, you're not really like I I'm a product of 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 the things that I'm exposed to in my life which may or may not have anything to do with what's actually going on in the world. It's, it's kind of like, like Plato's cave where everybody's looking at these shadows on the wall and they're pretty sure that, yeah, this is how it works. Yeah. I got it figured out. Here's these shadows. They show up at certain times. Well, not that that's kind of like existing in, in a media saturated culture. You are the product of all the little bits that you see around you and you don't actually have an identity. I, you just have pieces of of other people and other ideas inserted into you, and it'd be your parents again, 
or maybe your your friends or the pop culture you consume or something like that. And it, I guess it it appealed more to me when it when I wrote it and had just gotten out of college and trying to figure out the hell am I going to do with my life and how am I going to pay off this debt. <laughs> so some of that was uh, was nervousness trying to discover what my identity was in the midst of all these things, having just gone through this this process called college where people are telling you all of this different information, trying to mold you into a different person than you were when you got there, got me to think maybe I don't actually know who the hell I even am. And could that could that same effect be happening on a larger scale, like uh, through entertainment? And if that's true, we we have pieces of Oprah. We have pieces of. Um, I'm not hip anymore. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm gonna. I don't know. Justin Bieber. Okay, if that if he's not cool anymore, insert whatever else is cool that <laughs> took his place since then. But we got all these pieces of other celebrities inside of people running around all over the place, and. Uh, Nobody really knows why. Like, why? Why would I sacrifice the the one piece of my identity, the one life that I have? I'm I'm basically exchanging that piece of my identity in order to be ex entertained in a certain way. And what if you realized that one day, and you woke up and you said, "This is a giant scam, and I'm going to go out and kill every celebrity I can find." Now, not me, and not you, of course. I'm not saying that, but the characters in the book think that. Yeah. And um, one of their targets is a journalist, and one of their targets is a celebrity. And um, it takes this character who who doesn't have a name at the beginning. Um, take it, the story follows that character as he is manipulated into killing all of these people on behalf of this deranged psychopath that sounds a lot like the rant that I just did, but I'm not advocating anybody to go out and kill somebody. I'm telling you that, well, right. Yeah. I, I, I'm just saying it's, it's, um, this character has to go through that process to realize that no, wait, what you just said was actually the wrong thing because it's okay to take these pieces of other people and these other experiences to mold your own identity because people have been doing that since the beginning of time we just we wake up and we're we need to be social so that we know who we are in relation to everything else it's okay to do that but uh, in the process uh you see the story unfold from this this person's life as he goes about killing these people and then also this journalists who cover the celebrity killings which in their own way are are committing these acts of identity theft. So it's, um, you know, maybe I should have called it identity crisis maybe, but the title <laughs> was already taken. So. <laughs> well, I got to say that um, I love the way you think. It's like you think big and philosophically about uh, these various stories. Oh yeah. And that, that's part of the reason why I got into crime fiction is it's a perfect outlet to, to, explore these topics vicariously without killing people, of course, but also because there's so much more to crime fiction going on than the, just the crime. And I think that's always been the benefit of this genre is that you, the issues of morality and the issues of, yeah, philosophy. I mean, you have philosophical battles between good and evil in crime stories, but really 
you know, the the mouse is the mouse looks at the cat like the cat is the devil, but the the farmer who wants mice away from his grain looks at the cat like like uh, like God. You know, it, it's mm -hmm. it who is good and who is evil always depends on your perspective. And that part is where I think this genre really excels is getting to the nut of those really hard moral questions because to kill somebody I think you have to be in a your most raw and primitive state and that's where a lot of those questions start so I yeah it, it's a great genre for doing that great thoughts and yeah I agree um what's it been like to write uh, Vince Zandri's books you yeah. uh, worked on one and uh I would think it would be difficult to uh pick up a series and just to to extend it yourself yeah so i i picked up uh the fifth installment of his chase baker series and that's a series that started with a book called the shroud key and it's kind of like a mix between rambo and and dan brown and yeah it's probably the best way i can put it there is just there's a lot more action and a lot more of the the pulpy side of Dan Brown, but I, I still don't even like comparing the, the series against Dan Brown. I, I just because he's not in vogue with us writer types or something. But I I think he's all right. He's a good guy. I we just don't write the same stuff. But anyway, um, it's not hard to pick up on a series that works in episodic formats. There isn't one continuous storyline. So. Um, I had gotten to know Vince very well uh, through, um, well, actually through Crime Space, where I, where I first uh, came across you, is where I first came across Vince and became more or less a, a Vince Zandri fanboy. I read all of his books and reviewed them, and I, I got to know not only what he was writing, but how he wrote by the way that, that he formats his chapters and aligns his characters and the way that he builds the the plot. I started to dissect that to the point where when uh, Crime, Crime Spree magazine asked for a bio of his career, he just turned it back over to me to write. So I, I, I apparently he thought I knew more about him than even he did. So uh, after that, uh, I, I had started a, a survival magazine called Living Ready uh, which was about preparedness and disasters, and I, I, I think you're on the East Coast, so you're about to go through that. Um, I'm not <laughs> sure where you are, but I'm in, um, I'm in the, uh, yeah, in the path of the blizzard. Yeah, yeah, and we we had a whole issue about about cold weather preparedness. So it, yeah, it, it was, it was a great magazine while it was around. It's since morphed into a book brand, but at the time. I needed a freelancer to do some certain uh, articles for this magazine, and he came on board and did it, and it was great. Uh, there were great articles, and we were on newsstands coast to coast. It was awesome. It was a great time, and he really enjoyed it, and we kept in touch, and eventually just asked me to uh, be a franchisee of this series, which is I was honored to take part in, and I'm happy to say uh, after the first one, which was Chase Baker and the Viking Secret, uh, I'll be doing another one about ultra terrestrials, which doesn't really have a, a title right now, or it has a working title, but um, it, 
it's it's an experience. I, I think this this franchise model where you pair somebody who isn't as known for their fiction or maybe as well known as they'd like to be for their fiction, <laughs> like <laughs> myself and Vince Zandry, who sold hundreds of thousands of ebooks, um, franchising out a series character to somebody else to write and being very upfront about it. I mean, there, there's no smoke and mirrors here. My name's on the cover, so is his, and people know, but that model seems to work really well and if you can pull it off. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not a, and it's all through self-publishing. There's no publisher involved or anything. This is just between he and I, and it works really, it works really well. It, you're just, it's two people writing on a project. Uh, there, there's not a lot of lawyers involved. There's not a lot of agents involved. We, we have an agreement in place, but um, I, I'm free to write what I want. He approves the outline that I send him, and that's it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm struggling to find like a challenge here because it, it's one of the best projects I've ever worked on because it's, it's so liberating to not build a character or flesh out an environment. He's already done all that. I'm just stepping in and coming up with a plot and dropping characters in and having them shoot at each other and chase aliens around and everything. It's great. It's, it's a good I time. Think, <laughs> I think that is so awesome. And uh, when the next time you talk to Vince, tell him I said hi. <laughs> I will. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes, because yes. we've interacted online, but not uh, like this. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I can't let you go without asking you about your mentioning your blog, The Writer's Guide to Weapons. Oh, yeah. By the way, I subscribe to. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> a book that you put out through Writer's Digest about it. Yeah. Um, how did you become a weapons expert? Um, well, I don't, I guess I don't know that I am a weapons expert. I, full disclosure, I, I'll take, I'll take that as a compliment you calling me that. I'm not going to turn that down, but if I had, I mean, I, I know weapons experts and I know that I'm not up in their league. Um, I got into that role, uh, because I, I started working for this knife magazine, which had a bunch of sister publications like Gun Digest, Tactical Gear, uh, Modern Shooter, a lot of uh, firearm-centric publications. And, and it wasn't the go-out-and-kill-somebody type of, of stuff. This is very technical information. It's, it's industry information. It's for people who know a whole lot about this topic. I mean, down to the, the dimensions of the screws used on certain rifles back in the day. Or, it's just very technical stuff. Um, so I didn't come into that as an expert. I came into that as an editor and as somebody who knew something about transitioning, uh, magazine and book brands that have been around for a hundred years into, uh, into, you know, 2016 where, it, where just being a book isn't enough anymore. You have to come up with something else. So that's how I came into it, uh, is more from the digital business strategy side of it. But at the same time, I was still working editorial, and I was around some very smart people who who know a lot about this topic. I mean, probably, well, I wouldn't even say probably, they are the, the world's best resources on two legs uh, for this information. And they're writing books for us, they're writing magazine articles for us, and then I was exposed to a lot of information. And what I, what I came out of that, and I'm still, I'm still there, I mean, I'm not didn't leave that job, but what I, I 
what I got out of that was how to communicate about firearms and knives to people who don't know anything about them. Um, and that's, that's how I gained the appearance of being an editor or of being an expert. I, I see myself more as a communicator of this information in the same way that, that Bill Nye, the science guy, isn't the top of his field at everything that he talks about. Uh, it, I, I don't know what degrees he actually has, but I know that he's not number one in everything. He's, he's a communicator. And exactly. I, in the same, yeah, in, in, or like Carl Sagan. Terms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, I, I wondered if that could be translated into something useful for people who, who didn't necessarily know a lot about this topic and just wanted something that was quick and easy to learn. And yeah, whether, regardless of what they think of guns and knives, I mean, if they've never touched one, if they love them, uh, politically, it doesn't, none, none of that even matters because guns and knives only work one way. Uh, the laws of physics don't change depending on your experiences. So how could I distill that into something that was useful to other writers? And uh, as it turned out, this, this is an idea I had for a long time because I, I read this crime fiction, read these online stories, and it's Sometimes you just run into people who don't know what they're talking about, and they look like they look like idiots for it. I'm sorry, it's it ruins the story if you know what to look for. It's 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 like English majors coming across irregardless in something. Mm -hmm. They can't not see that. Like they're they can't. Mm -hmm. it, it bugs them, and and it was bugging me. And really, it was doing a, these writers were doing a disservice to themselves because they had great stories. Otherwise, they were just calling. They were cocking hammers on Glocks. They were uh, calling every night for Switchblade. They they were making silencers out of Play-Doh and and book covers or something. I don't. Know. <laughs> they were just doing all these things that made them look like morons. And, and the the thing that got me is that these mistakes were repeated over and over again. So people were actually getting the information by reading books and 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 watching movies in. I think the problem was they just didn't know where to look or know who to ask or even maybe they were afraid to ask because uh, if, you know, there, there's certain things, I I don't know, I don't know what topic, but if I didn't know a lot about it, I might be hesitant to ask somebody. So it's not enough for me to just come up with a blog post about something and just chastise people or point my fingers. And I, and I never do that. I never call anybody out uh, for making a mistake. I only ever talk about the information. The, the writer is completely separate from it. And I think that's important. But um, what's the best way I can do that? All right, I've gone through the long way. And the, the short way is Writer's Digest Books was the best way to do that. And they, here's my book, um, Writer's Guide to Weapons. And they they took me on and and let me write a, a huge book that was that has gone on to do a, a lot of uh, I I think it's successful I hope people think it's successful um, I think it's it's done very well and uh, the parts that couldn't get into that book turned into my blog which is crimefictionbook.com and I'm continuing that same mission of of education of trying to make people look their best. And they put out their manuscripts and I do it in a way 
that I think is that I think is different from some of the other information out there in that you're always gonna you you don't have to, you still don't know have to know a single thing about guns or knives. Nobody's yelling at you, and you're uh, you're walking away with a better sense of how to write this information without actually having to touch anything. I, I, those, that, those have been my three planks of, of this process the entire time. And I, I think it's gone over really well. And I, I, people really like the website. They really like the book. People in Europe especially like the book. And I think that has something to do with laws in uh, that part of the world where maybe it's, it's more difficult to find access to firearms or they just didn't grow up with the same sort of uh, outdoors heritage that somebody like myself did where guns and knives are just a part of how I grew up. Um, it's, it's, it's really cool to see people respond to that and they seem to enjoy it. And um, the blog is just another way of reaching them and making sure that they're, they're getting that information. I, I just enjoy doing it too. It, it helps me, stay connected and helps me uh, talk to people from from all over it I, it's just a great experience i i'm glad that people have found it because at the time i didn't know if it was going to work uh but there's enough interest in this there, there's enough depraved writer minds out there that they want to know about guns and knives and and the best way to uh, outfit their characters so yeah well that's fantastic and um i'm gonna have to wrap up here so okay uh, but thank you so much for um, being here today. And uh, I, I won't go without saying that you also consult on the subject of weapons. So um, if you want to know anything about weaponry, go to Ben Sobiek's uh, blog, blog, uh, well, blog. <laughs> yeah. And just look for the uh, consulting button. And uh, he also has the book as well. And before we go, I'll just say one more time, please give us a like on Facebook, Crime Cafe, and uh, if you would, give us a review on iTunes, and stop by at crimecafe.net, where you'll find the link that says Crime Cafe you can click on, and go to um, all of the interviews in video and audio form, as well as the 99 cent story package and the Crime Cafe merchandise store. So uh, with that, I will say thanks again, Ben, and see everybody in two weeks.